Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we are so grateful for all that you've done in our lives. We thank you so much for all the things that we've learned in these past few weeks and the friendships that have been made and the lives that have been touched. We thank you so much, Lord, for your mercy that has uh, given us life today. And we thank you, Lord, so much that you've promised to give us peace, perfect peace, when we keep our mind fixed on you. Lord, we've come to this place because we want to yield our mind to Jesus, to be enlightened by the Holy Spirit, to be inspired by the Word. And so, Lord, would you please speak to our hearts, give us attentive minds and attentive ears, and help us, Lord, that we might not only understand, but that we might experience your love tonight. And I pray, Lord, that we would not only be readers and hearers of your word, but that we would be doers and followers as well. Please bless us now as we study. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Our message tonight, Revelation's Spirit of Prophecy, is one that highlights the fact that our God is a God of communication, a God of communion, a God of connection. From the very beginning of time, this is how God has always been. When you read the book of Genesis, you find that man was in perfect harmony with their Creator. And God was able to have face-to-face communion and communication with us. This was His original plan for His children. God never intended for anything to separate us from Him. But sadly and tragically, this perfect relationship only lasted two chapters in the Bible. For the third chapter of Genesis gives to us the sad record of how sin had interrupted God's perfect plan, and as a result, mankind could no longer find face-to-face communion and communication with the Creator. Our sin has made us unfit to dwell in the presence of perfect purity. Because of sin, we would be consumed by the glory of God. And so God in mercy called or told Adam and Eve that they had to leave the Garden of Eden. And even though sin had cut us off from God, not even sin could cut us off from the love of God. God in love still found another way to keep in touch, another way to communicate and connect with us. And I want you to notice what, they, what way that was. In Acts chapter 3 and verse 21, please write it down. The Bible says that God has spoken by the mouth of all of His holy prophets since when? Since the world began, ever since the beginning, when sin interrupted this perfect relationship, God found another way to keep in touch with us, and that is that He would speak through the mouth of His holy prophets. In Amos chapter 3 and verse 7, the Bible says, Surely the Lord God does nothing unless He reveals His secrets to His servants, the who? The prophets. So God was still able to communicate with the human race, By revealing his secret things to individuals that he would handpick. These were called the prophets. And God would speak to them through visions or dreams, communicating his will for man and his love for man. 
And then these prophets would then communicate what God had revealed to them to the rest of the world. This was God's way of keeping in touch. God used these different men and women as His spokesmen, spokeswomen, to communicate His messages of love. And friends, this is what we're going to study tonight, the, the idea of prophets and the gift of prophecy and prophesying. And one of the first things I want us to understand that when it comes to prophecy or prophesying in the Bible, there are two types of prophets and two types of prophesying. There is primary prophets, primary prophesying, and there's also secondary prophets or secondary prophesying. Now, the essential difference is this. Primary prophets are those who receive direct revelation from God either through visions or dreams. Those are the primary prophets. Secondary prophets would be those who would simply repeat the words of the primary prophets. An example of this is Moses and Aaron. God spoke to Moses through visions and dreams. He was a primary prophet. But then you remember Moses, he had a stuttering problem, so he would communicate that to Aaron, his brother, and Aaron would simply repeat the words of Moses. Aaron was, in a real sense, a secondary prophet because he was repeating the words of the primary prophet. And this is the idea we get all over the Bible, especially in the New Testament when it deals with the gift of prophecy and prophesying. And so, friends, here's the point. When you share the Word of God with others, you are in a real biblical sense prophesying. Now, you may not be a prophet of God. In other words, you may not re be receiving direct revelation from Him through visions or dreams, but when you share the, the words of the primary prophets with others, when you witness for your faith, when you share the Bible, when you quote promises to people, you are in a real sense prophesying. In other words, preaching and witnessing is a way of prophesying. But friends, tonight we're not going to focus on the secondary sense of prophesying, but more so the primary. How do you become a primary or a prophet of God. Now, notice what it says in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20 and 21. Please write it down. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scriptures of any private interpretation. For prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the what? So, friends, I want you to notice that these prophets of God that spoke and wrote they did not have that gift by their own accord or their own desires. It did not come from their own will, but rather it was the Holy Spirit that moved upon them. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is the one that determines who receives what gift. So it's not as though you can say, oh, for a career, I want to become a prophet of God. It doesn't work like that, friends. It's the Holy Spirit that calls an individual to the prophetic office. It does not come from the will of man, but these individuals wrote and they spoke as the Spirit of God moved upon them. In fact, we find this repeated in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 11, where the Bible tells us, talking about the Holy Spirit and the different gifts of the Spirit, it says that the Spirit, it says, dividing to every man severally as he will, as the Holy Spirit wills, as God wills. And so it's important for us to understand that. Why? Because there are many people who are confused about the gifts of the Spirit. They think that if they pray enough for a specific gift, that God will give them that gift. They're the ones that are choosing which gifts they want. But it doesn't work like that, friends. Instead of praying for our own will, we need to pray that God's will will be done. Can you say amen? He's the one that determines 
who will receive what gift. And he does not give the same gift or all the gifts to every, every person. He knows who he, could, who he could trust with the different gifts of the Spirit. And then it says in 2 Timothy 3.16, it says that all Scripture is given by what? Inspiration of God. In other words, those prophets who wrote down the Scriptures, they did not write their own ideas, their own, uh, their own uh, interpretations, but rather it was the inspiration of God. And friends, that word inspiration in the Greek, it literally means God breathed. What does in- inspiration mean? God breathed. It came from the mouth and heart of God, and they wrote it down, friends. And so we find, as we continue, that not all of God's prophets were Bible writers. Uh, an example of this is John the Baptist. John the Baptist was a true prophet of God, according to Jesus. And yet John the Baptist did not write down any of his messages. There's no book in the Bible that was written by John the Baptist. And so that begs the question, well, what's the difference then between the Bible writers who were prophets and other true prophets that perhaps did not write down their, 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 their messages, the messages? Well, the essential difference is this. The prophets who wrote down the, their messages in the Bible were given messages that would benefit God's people in every age, not just theirs. And for that cause, the Spirit of God inspired them to write down their message for future generations. Whereas other prophets were given messages for the church only for that particular time. Not only that, but we also see that God not only spoke through men, He also spoke through women. Can you say amen, ladies? There were prophetess of the Lord in the Old and New Testament. Deborah was a prophetess of the Lord. Huldah was a, a prophetess of the Lord as well. In the New Testament, the four daughters of Philip prophesied in Acts 21. Anna was a prophetess. Elizabeth was a prophetess. God spoke through old and young and male and female and rich and poor. This was essentially God's way of communicating to the entire human race that He loves us and He wants to keep in touch with us because He's a God of communion, a God of connection, a God of communication. Now, the, the, this means of communication wasn't the same as it was in the beginning. It wasn't face-to-face, but it, it was adequate to get His messages of love across for a time. But friends, the only limitation with this is, is that prophets could only communicate God's messages through their words, but words by itself are insufficient. In other words, human language is inadequate to reveal the fullness of the love of God. And so you know what God did? He came Himself to commune with us. The light of the world stepped into the darkness, and He wrapped His divinity in the garbs of our humanity. Jesus, the Bible says, is the Word that was made flesh. God's words made visible through the life of the Son, Jesus Christ. And friends, it's amazing to think that this baby born in a a barn in a manger, that baby that could not yet speak was the Word of God to man. And He came, friends, Himself to communicate His love for us, not just by His words and by His teachings, but by His life. And not only his life, his death. In Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3, talking about the Son Jesus, it says that he being the brightness of his, that's the Father's glory, 
and the express image of his person. Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, not because he is the Father, but rather because he's just like the Father, like Father, like Son. And so when you look upon Christ, he came in human flesh to reveal to us with words, but more than that, also actions through his life and his death, just how much God loves us and how God feels towards the children of men. And he died for us. And after he died, he came forth from the tomb early Sunday morning, the first day of the week, as a conqueror over the grave. And as he ascended back to the Father in heaven, he then would send the Holy Spirit in a special way to give gifts to the New Testament church. Notice what it says now in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 8. Wherefore he says, when he ascendeth upon high, he led captivity captive and gave what? He gave gifts unto men. And so as Jesus ascends back to the Father in heaven, through the Holy Spirit, he now gives gifts to his New Testament church. Now, what were these gifts of the Spirit? In verse 11 through 13, it gives a list of the gifts of the Spirit. And notice what it says, Ephesians 4, 11 through 13. And he gave some, notice, not all, not everyone gets the same gift. He gave some what? Apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. And so these are the different gifts of the Holy Spirit that God would pour upon His New Testament church. He called some to be apostles, others prophets and evangelists, pastors and teachers. These are the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Now, for what purpose were these gifts given? The next verse tells us, for the perfecting of the saints for the work of the ministry and for the edifying of the what? the body of Christ. And so notice, the purpose of the different gifts of the Spirit were twofold. Number one, it was, to, it was to equip the saints to do ministry for the work of the ministry. That's outreach. That's spreading the gospel to the world, being a witness to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. So the gifts of the Spirit was to help the church reach out, but not only outreach, in reach as well, for the edifying of the body, which is the church of Christ. So the gift of pastors and, and teachers and evangelists and apostles and prophets was to reach out and to reach in, to strengthen the, the body of Christ, the church, but also to be a blessing to the world to communicate the messages of God's love to the world. And if that makes sense, would you please say amen? Now, how long were these gifts to remain in the church? How long? The next verse tells us, Till, and that word till denotes a time period. It says, till we all come in the what? Unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So the Bible says that these gifts of the Spirit would remain with God's church and His people till we all come into the unity of the faith. Now, what does that mean? Unity of the faith. Well, what is faith based upon? Faith is not based upon feelings. Faith is not based upon circumstances. Faith is based upon the Bible. In Romans 10, 17, it says, Now faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the what? The Word of God. And so when it says, Until we all come into the unity of the faith, and if faith is based upon God's Word, that basically is saying that the gifts of the Holy Spirit would remain in the church until we all come into the same understanding of the teachings of the Word of God, which is the basis of true faith. Now, let me ask you a question. Is the Christian church today 
Have we come into the unity of the faith, yes or no? No, friends, we have so many different conflicting doctrines amongst the churches. People believe so many different things concerning what the Bible teaches, which shows that we have not yet come to the unity of the faith. And if we have not yet come into the unity of the faith, and if the gifts of the Spirit will remain until we do so, that shows that all the gifts of the Spirit must remain in God's church even till, till, till right now. Is that right? Not just the gift of pastors and teachers and apostles and evangelists, but also the gift of prophets. And notice the Bible is saying that there will be prophets all the way to the end of time. Now, how do we know that? Well, will we ever come into the unity of the faith? The answer is yes. Revelation 14, 12 describes the final church, the God's end-time people of the last days. And it says that they have the faith of Jesus. They have the what? Now, is that a unified and complete faith, yes or no? Yes, friends. And so God's people at the end will have the faith of Jesus, a complete unified faith, which shows, again, the, the simple point is that God's gifts would remain in the church all the way to the very end of time. And if that's clear, would you please say amen? So God's true church at the end is just like the one from the beginning. They would have pastors and evangelists and teachers and apostles and prophets as well. It would remain to the very end of time. That's a very clear biblical teaching. In fact, notice another uh, verse that emphasizes and highlights that same point. In 1 Corinthians 1, verse 6 and 7, write it down, the Apostle Paul is writing, and he says this, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, that's in the church. What was confirmed in the church? The what? The testimony of Christ, Paul says, is confirmed in you. In other words, you have the testimony of Christ. But what is the testimony of Christ? The Bible interprets itself. Notice how the testimony of Christ is defined in Revelation 19 and verse 10. Please write it down. The Bible says that the testimony of Jesus is the what? Spirit of prophecy. So what is the testimony of Jesus Christ? the spirit of prophecy. So we go back to that verse, and when Paul says, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, what is the testimony of Christ? It is the spirit of prophecy. So Paul is saying that the testimony of Christ, which is the same thing as the spirit of prophecy, is confirmed in you. Why? So that you come behind in no what? Gift. In other words, God wants His church to not lack any of the gifts of the Spirit especially the testimony of Christ, which is the spirit of prophecy. He wants us to have that gift too. And he was speaking to the New Testament church, the original early apostolic church, but not just them because notice the rest of the verse. So that you come behind in no gift, waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, are we still waiting for the coming of Jesus? Yes or no? Yes, which shows that the testimony of Christ, which is the spirit of prophecy, will be confirmed in God's true church all the way to the very end of time. In other words, God's end time church will have the spirit or the gift of prophecy. And if that's clear, would you please say amen? Very clear, friends. The Bible is abundantly clear on this issue. God's end time people will not only have pastors and teachers and evangelists and apostles like most churches have, they will also have prophets as well because that's one of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Now, as you follow the New Testament narrative, 
The question begs the answer, well, what happened to the gifts of the Spirit after all the apostles died and the early apostolic church passed off the scene? Well, friends, not many generations passed until the church began to adopt pagan rites and discarding fundamental Bible truths. The church began to compromise, and, and, and as a result, friends, during this time known as the Dark Ages, Bibles were chained literally to monastery pulpits. The common people were forbidden to read or own the Bible, and only the priests were allowed to read and interpret the Bible. And during this age of compromise, the law of God, the Ten Commandments, was replaced with the traditions of the church. And so the early apostolic church passed off the scene. Now the great falling away, the great apostasy takes place. And notice when, the, when, a, when a church disregards God's Word and disregards God's law, the question is this, what happens to the prophetic gift? What happens to the gifts of the Spirit when the church disregards God's law? Here's what happens, friends. I want you to write it down. In Lamentations chapter 2 and verse 9, Lamentations 2.9 tells us, the law is no more, and her prophets no longer find what? Visions from the Lord. The Bible says that when the law is no more, or when, the, when a church disregards God's law and says we don't have to keep it, that it's done away with, that, that we don't need to pay it any special attention, the Bible says that the prophets will no longer find visions from the Lord. And friends, the reason for that is simple. Is, and that is that God is not going to send us more truth through His prophets until we begin to live up to the truth that He's already given to us. God is not going to send more light if we're not living up to the light that we already have. And here's the reason. Because information without application results in condemnation. Did you catch that? <laughs> Somebody liked that. <laughs> Information without application results in condemnation because to whom much is given, much is required, Jesus said. And so Christ is not going to give us more light or more information if He knows that we're not going to apply it or live it out because that additional light or information will end up condemning us more in the judgment. And so God in mercy withholds some light until we begin to live up to the light that we already have. Does that make sense? Now, that's what happened during the Dark Ages. When the church said that the law is no more and they disregarded the Ten Commandments, God had to remove the prophetic gift. And it was lost for many centuries in that medieval church. And by the way, the gift of prophecy is absent in many churches today as well. And you know why? Because many churches today as well are still saying the law is no more. Many churches are saying, oh, you don't have to keep the Ten Commandments. It was nailed to the cross. We're not under the law. We're under grace. We find this greasy grace gospel being preached that disregards the holy law of God. And friends, when, when, we, when we say the law is no more, God removes the prophetic gift. And unfortunately, many of the counterfeit gifts of the Spirit is present in many of those churches. And so God is not going to bless us with the Holy Spirit to preach a false message. And thus, He has to withhold the gifts. Because remember, what is the purpose of the gifts? The purpose of the gifts is to spread the gospel to the world. But if we have the wrong gospel, if we're saying the law is no, no more, 
that He's not going to bless us with the power of the Spirit that enables us to share that false message. Now, does that make sense, yes or no? And so, the gift was lost for many centuries, but would this gift be lost forever? Not at all. God has given us a prophetic promise in His Word that He would restore the gift of prophecy to His true people in the last days. Notice in Acts chapter 2 and verse 17, this verse was fulfilled in the days of the early apostolic church. That's the original church. And it says on the day of Pentecost, Peter was quoting, it says, And it shall come to pass in the what days? In the last days, says the Lord, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters shall, what? Prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Now, this prophecy was partially fulfilled in the days of the early apostolic church. They had a pure message. They were keeping the commandments of God, and thus God gave them the power of the Holy Spirit with all the gifts, including the gift of prophecy, to spread the message to the world. But friends, the greater fulfillment of this verse is not in the days of the early apostolic church, but rather in the last days, in the days of the, listen, the, the days of the remnant of the early apostolic church. How do we know? Because the Bible tells us so. In Revelation chapter 12 and verse 17, let's review what we studied the other night, this past Saturday. Revelation 12 verse 17, we studied this whole chapter, and this is dealing with God's church and during the, in different phases of the great controversy. And in verse 17, it describes the final church and its characteristics, those who live in the last days. And it says, and the dragon, who's the dragon? Satan, of course, was wroth with the woman. Who's the woman? But which church specifically? The early apostolic church, the original church, friends. The dragon, Satan, was angry with that original church, the woman, and went to make war not with the woman, but with the what? Remnant of her seed. Why not make war with the woman? Because that time period is past. However, the woman has a seed, an offspring, and that offspring is called the remnant. And you remember what the word remnant means? two things. Number one, that which remains and is just like the original. You remember that? The remnant is the leftovers. That which remains and it's just like the original. In other words, the Bible is saying that God is going to have an end-time church, a remaining church, a last-day church that is just like the original woman, the original early apostolic church that had a pure faith, that kept all of God's commandments, and had all the gifts of the Spirit, not only pastors and teachers and evangelists and apostles, but prophets as well. Does that make sense? And it says it right there in the verse, in fact. So, the remnant of her seed, and who are they? Which keep the commandments of God. Notice, here's a church that is not saying the law has been done away with. They're actually keeping the law because they love Christ. And because they're keeping the law, they also have the testimony of Jesus Christ. So the remnant church is just like the original church that keeps the commandments and they have the testimony of Jesus Christ. Well, what is the testimony of Jesus Christ again? Revelation 19.10, write it down. It says, I am thy fellow servant and of thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus. Stop right there. Who has the testimony of Jesus? The who? The brethren that have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the what? Spirit of prophecy. 
But who has the spirit of prophecy? The brethren, friends. They have the testimony of Jesus. The same thing as the spirit of prophecy. And the remnant, they have it. So what, who are the brethren? Well, friends, we don't have to guess because Revelation 22 verse 9 tells us clearly who the brethren are. Notice, for I am, for I am your fellow servant and of your brethren, the prophets. And those who keep the words of the book worship God. And so the Bible says clearly that God's end-time church will have the testimony of Jesus, which is the spirit of prophecy. And it also says that the brethren have it. And who are the brethren? It is the prophets. So when you let the Bible speak for itself, the conclusion is clear. God's end-time church will have all the gifts of the Spirit including the gift of prophecy in their midst. They will not lack any gift of the Spirit. God will give them all the gifts. Why? Because they have a pure message that He wants them to communicate to the whole world. And if that makes sense, would you please say amen? And by the way, not only is it biblical, but it makes sense in the fact that this is the consistent way that God works. You see, when you study the Bible you notice that at every major event that took place, at every major, the fulfillment of any major prophecy, God always rose up a prophet before the event happened to warn the people so that they could be ready for the event. For example, when the world was about to be destroyed with a flood, before the flood came, God rose up a prophet to warn the people so that people could get ready for the flood. What was that prophet's name? Noah. Not only that, but when Jerusalem was going to be destroyed by Babylon, or actually, before I get to that, when God was going to rescue His people from Egyptian bondage, God again rose up a prophet to tell the people so that they could get ready for the exodus. What was that prophet's name? Moses. You see, for, before any major event that God would do, He always consistently rose up a prophet first so that people could get ready. When Jerusalem was going to be destroyed by Babylon, God rose up a prophet again to warn the people so that they could get ready for the captivity. And that prophet's name was Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. But they threw him in the, into a pit. They didn't want to hear what the prophet had to say. When Jesus was going to come into this world and begin his ministry, God again rose up a prophet to tell the people so that the people could get ready for the ministry of Christ at his first coming. And what was that prophet's name? John the Baptist, before every major event, God raises up a prophet to tell the people. When, when probation was about to be closed upon uh, on, on, on Israel as a nation, at the end of the 70-week prophecy of Daniel 9, God rose up a prophet during that time period as well. And that was Stephen, but it was also Saul who became Paul. He was not only a, an apostle, but he also had the gift of prophecy. Before every major event, friends, God always raises up a prophet first to tell the people. Do you see that? Now, here's the thing. Why would God change and not raise up a prophet before the grand main event of all events? And what is that? The second coming of Christ. I mean, that's the main event. Isn't that right? And why would God change and not send a prophet before His second coming? I mean, if that's the consistent way God works, surely 
he would do the same thing at the very end of time for the main event of it all. And we're going to see tonight that God did exactly that. He rose up an end-time prophet to help people be ready for the coming of Jesus Christ. This is biblical, and it's the consistent way in which God works. The remnant will have the testimony of Jesus. The remnant is the last day church, and the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And so with that solid foundation, we now need to answer the next question, and that is this. How can you spot a true prophet? Because remember, Jesus said that there will be many false Christs and false prophets in the last days. And he said, do not be deceived by them. Now, I want you to think about that for a moment. If there is going to be false prophets in the last days, that also implies that there must be true prophets in the last days. Otherwise, God would have, would have said, don't listen to anybody. But he didn't say that. He said, beware of false prophets. And so how do you spot a true prophet from a false? Well, the Bible tells us that we need to test the spirits. Notice in 1 John 4, verse 1. Write it down. It says, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but do what? Try the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. So the Bible says, don't believe everything you hear. Don't be so gullible and naive. You need to use your brain and try or test the spirits to make sure it's not a false spirit, a counterfeit spirit, and a false prophet. In fact, Paul said the same thing in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 20 and 21. And this is an important verse for our study tonight. We're going to read this verse three times. That's how important it is. And in this verse, we find three steps or three things God commands us to do. 1 Thessalonians 5, 20 and 21, the Bible says, Do not what? Despise prophesying. In other words, don't close your mind to it, friends. Yes, don't believe everything you hear, but at the same time, don't have a mind that is so closed that God can't teach you anything. Do not despise prophesying, but number two, what? Test all things. And if it passed the test, do the third part. Hold on to that which is good. So don't believe everything you hear. At the same time, don't despise prophesying. You need to have an open mind, but don't open your mind so much that your brain falls out. Amen? <laughs> open your mind, but not so much that your brain falls out, but rather test all things. And if it passed the test, hold on to that which is good. So how do we spot a true prophet? By testing the message and the spirit behind it. Now, if we are to test it, how do we test it? Tonight, I want to give you five biblical tests on how to tell a true prophet. How many tests? And I hope you write them down, friends. Five biblical tests of how to tell a true prophet from a false. And the first test is prophetic accuracy. Prophetic accuracy. In other words, a true prophet, when he prophesies, they will prophesy accurately. What they say will come to pass. And the verse for that is Jeremiah 28 and verse 9. It says, When the word of the prophet shall come to pass, then shall the prophet be known that the Lord hath truly sent him. So that word must come to pass. They must be accurate in their prophecies. You see, a false prophet can guess the future and maybe sometimes be right. But a true prophet must be 100% accurate 100% of the time. And if that's clear, would you please say amen? Now, with this test, it's important for us to remember that some of God's prophecies are conditional in nature. 
Some of God's prophecies are what? Conditional in the sense that they don't always come to pass because it's based upon the condition of how people receive or reject the message. And you can find the conditional nature of prophecy in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 18, verses 7 through 10. Please write that down. Very important. Look it up when you get on. There's a conditional nature of many of God's prophecies. It's based upon how people receive it or reject it. An example of this is Jonah, as you see on the screen. Now, was Jonah a true prophet of God? Yes or no? Yes, according to Jesus, he was. And Jonah prophesied that Nineveh would be destroyed in 40 days. But was Nineveh destroyed in 40 days? No. Now, did that make Jonah a false prophet because his prophecy did not come to pass? Yes or no? No. Why? Because that prophecy was conditional. It would have happened had the people not repent. But because they believed the message and repented, God spared that city from that terrible destruction. And so, with this test by itself, it's not sufficient to really tell a true prophet because some prophecies are conditional in nature. And that's the reason why God has not given us just one test. There are five of them specifically we want to share tonight. And so we go to the next one. Number two, a true prophet will always prophesy uh, uh, consistently with what God has revealed in the past. In other words, biblical faithfulness. Biblical faithfulness. They will never contradict what God has revealed in the past. And the verse for that is 1 Corinthians 14, verse 32 and 33. 1 Corinthians 14, 32 and 33. It says, And the spirit of the prophets are subject to the... The what? The prophets. Not to their own ideas. The spirit of the prophets are subject to the prophets. What prophets? The prophets that came before them, of course. And why is that? It says, For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. In other words, a true prophet, the, 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 the test of their, of their call is if they prophesy in accordance with the prophets of the past, because God will never contradict himself. Old, uh, excuse me, new light will never contradict old light. If it did, that would be confusion. But God is not the author of confusion. Satan is. And so if someone claims to be a prophet and they begin to teach something that is contrary to what God has already revealed in his word, you can know right there it's a false prophet. Now, that person may be able to do miracles. They may be able to perform signs and wonders. Satan can do that. So the test is not the miracle. A test is not their following. They must be in harmony with the light God has already revealed. For example, if I lit a match up here, the fire and the light shining from that match, that would be new light. But would that light destroy the light that's already shining in this room, yes or no? No, friends, it wouldn't destroy the lights already shining. Well, what would it do? It would simply add to the light that's already shining in this room. In the same way, new light doesn't do away with old light. It simply adds light. It, it clarifies and makes things brighter. And that's the work of prophets. <clears throat> and if that makes sense, would you please say amen? Now, test number three, a true prophet would always exalt not themselves, not a man, not a church, but Jesus Christ. In 1 John chapter 4 and verse 2, by this you know the Spirit of God, every spirit that does what? Confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. So how do we know that it's truly of God's Spirit? 
they would confess Jesus Christ. In other words, a true prophet would always lift up Christ. Their message and their mission, mission will be Christ-centered. Why? Because, friends, think about it. It's Jesus' testimony. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So the words of the prophets are basically the t- Jesus' own words. It's the testimony of Jesus. And it co- if it comes from Jesus, it will lead us back to Jesus as well. Can you say amen? And so a true prophet like John the Baptist would not lift up them- themselves. They would lift up Christ. John the Baptist said, he must increase, I must decrease. And so that's the fourth test, or excuse me, the third test. The fourth test is that a true prophet will always lead people back to obedience to God's commandments. Commandment keeping, that's number four. The verse for that is Isaiah chapter 8 and verse 20, and you can also write down Deuteronomy 13 verses 1 through 5. A true prophet will always lead God's people back to obedience to the law. It says here, to the law and to the testimony. If they do not speak according to this word, it is because there is how much light in them. No light in them. If someone speaks not according to the word of the law and the testimony, there is no light in that individual because a true prophet would always lead God's people back to the testimonies of God and back to the holy law of God. When you study the Old Testament prophets, they were always bringing the disobedient back into obedience to God. And so they will be commandment-keeping for sure. And then the fifth test, Test number five, a true prophet will bear good fruit. The fruit of their life and the fruit of their ministry and message will be good. Good fruit, not bad fruit. Jesus said in Matthew 7, verse 20, Wherefore, by their fruits you shall know them. Their life and message would bear good fruit. The end result of their mission is not personal gain, but the salvation of souls and the glory of God. Can you say amen? And so now back to the question, how do you spot a true prophet? Not based upon their claims, not based upon how big their following is, not based upon signs and wonders and miracles, but based upon the tests in the Word of God, the Bible. Now, friends, if an individual claims to be a prophet and they only pass four of the five tests, are they a true prophet? Not at all. How many of the five tests must they pass in order to be a true prophet? All of them, friends. Every single biblical test. Now, the next question. Are the teachings of modern or end-time prophets meant to be an addition to the Bible or to take the place of the Bible? Not at all, friends. The biblical canon was closed in Revelation. God's Word stands alone. And so the ministry and the purpose of the teachings of modern prophets is not to take the place of the Bible, nor is it an addition to the Bible, but rather it's to lead God's people back to the Bible, the Word of God. Can you say amen? And friends, here's the thing, though. The Bible clearly teaches that God's remnant church at the end of time will have the gift of prophecy in their midst. That is a biblical teaching straight from Revelation amongst other places. And so if the Word of God teaches that He's going to restore the gift of prophecy to the remnant church, then we have to open our eyes and open our minds and search for the fulfillment of this biblical prophecy. And so if that's the case, one question remains. Does the remnant church have the gift of prophecy? 
Has God blessed the Seventh-day Adventist Church with this special gift, not only the gift of pastors and evangelists and teachers and apostles, but also the gift of a prophet? Or friends, if they did not have a prophet, they could not be the remnant church and would have to look for another church. Because remember, friends, the remnant is just like the original. And if the original had all the gifts, so too will the remnant have all the gifts as well. And friends, the good news is this. The Seventh-day Church does have this special gift. And so allow me, friends, to share with you the history of how God sought to keep in touch with His people in these last days through this prophetic gift. Let me give you the history now as we shift gears a little bit. In the early 19th century, there was a great religious awakening taking place, especially here in the United States of America. It was a time of tremendous interest in Bible study and prayer. And the prophecies of Daniel and Revelation held special interest in the minds of many people. And and so there's a group of people that were studying Bible prophecy, especially the time prophecy of Daniel 8, verse 14. A time prophecy that says, Unto 2,300 what? Days, then what's going to happen? Shall the sanctuary be cleansed? And it was a Baptist preacher by the name of William Miller that first studied this prophecy, and he began to teach it in his Baptist church, and then he started receiving invitations to to teach it in many different denominations. And he taught that this time prophecy, the 2,300-day prophecy, would be fulfilled and come to an end in the year 1844. And they began to teach that the sanctuary would be cleansed in 1844. But here's the thing where where, where Willem Miller uh, was mistaken. He thought that the sanctuary was planet Earth and that the only way the Earth could be cleansed was by fire at the second coming of Jesus Christ. So he began to teach and preach that Jesus is coming again, coming to cleanse the sanctuary of the Earth in the year 1844. And as he taught this, Many churches and many people believed it. It was a great revival and a a religious awakening taking place as people truly believed that Jesus was about to come. But friends, 1844 came and went, and Jesus did not show up. And many people who thought he would come in that year were bitterly and greatly disappointed. Many of them lost faith in God completely. Their faith was dramatically shaken. But amongst the people that were disappointed, there was a small group of people who, though they were disappointed, they went back to study the Word of God like they never studied it before. They thought to themselves, maybe we miscalculated the time element, and and maybe we we, we got it off by a few years, and when they went back to study the 2,300 days, they saw that that time prophecy was solid, confirmed by history, that indeed something did happen in that year. But upon further investigation, they realized that they had the right date but they had the wrong event. They thought that the sanctuary was the earth, but when they went back to study it, they realized that there was not one verse in the Bible that said that the sanctuary was the earth. They assumed that, but they were wrong in the assumption. However, after much prayer and study, the Holy Spirit led them to the book of Hebrews, where they learned that there's a sanctuary in heaven. And that in the year 1844, Jesus would would go into the most holy place and begin a special cleansing work in the sanctuary above in the investigative judgment to prepare a people for his soon return. And out of their bitter disappointment came this sweet 
discovery when they understood what Jesus as their great high priest was doing for them in heaven. And that gave rise to God's final prophetic movement of destiny. As I said, it included a small group of people, individuals from various different denominations, Baptists and Methodists and so forth, and they got together and they would spend entire nights in prayer and Bible study, praying all night long, studying the Scriptures. They did not want to get anything wrong like they did before. They wanted to make sure that everything they believed was backed up by a thus saith the Lord and an it is written. And so they put aside all their assumptions. They put aside all their pre-opinionated ideas and they approached the Scriptures with an honest and sincere heart and they began to pour over the Scriptures. And they compared what the Bible teaches with the different teachings of the churches of the day. And whatever the Baptist church had that was biblical, they kept. Whatever the Baptist believed that was not biblical, they rejected. Whatever the Methodist church had that was biblical, they kept. Whatever was not, they rejected. Whatever the Presbyterians had that was biblical, they kept. Whatever was not, they rejected. And so they started gathering all the different truths from all the different churches and denominations and bringing them all together and friends, as the truth was accumulated, they brought it together in one package, and that is what gave birth to the Seventh-day Adventist movement, a movement that would grow to the fastest-growing denomination in the world today, sweeping across the whole world. And friends, as old, forgotten truths were rediscovered through an upper-room experience of prayer and intense Bible study, as, as truth was being restored to this group of people, God faithful to his word, restored the lost gift of prophecy to his remnant church. And here's the reason. They had the right message. And because they discovered the truth and the whole, they brought all the truth together, now God was able to entrust them with the spirit and the gifts of the spirit to spread that message to the whole world. And so God began to give visions and dreams to a weak and feeble girl by the name of Ellen Harmon, later to be known as Ellen G. White. God handpicked her to do a special work in the last days, and Seventh-day Adventists believe that God gave to her the gift of prophecy. Now, friends, listen, many people have misunderstandings concerning her gift, and to be quite frank and honest, many people have lied uh, about this, the special ministry that she had, and so let me just tell you from the horse's mouth, who exactly was Ellen White, and what was she like? She was born on November 26 in the year 1827 in the state of Maine, in Gorham, Maine. She was born into a Methodist family. She was Methodist, and she was the youngest of eight children. And when she was in third grade, she suffered a terrible injury that caused her to, have to drop out of school. And the doctor said that she did not have long to live. She was third grade and a terrible injury. But God preserved her life. And so by the time she was 17 years old, Two months after the great disappointment in 1844, she began to receive visions to share with the disappointed Advent people. And in her first vision, she saw a narrow pathway. And she saw the people of God walking upon that narrow road, the straight and narrow road. And she saw that in front of the road, there was a great light in front of them. Jesus was there. And she saw that as long as the people walking on the narrow road kept their eyes on Christ, they were able to walk safely through the darkness of their disappointment. But then she saw that all those who took their eyes off of Jesus, off of the light, they fell off of that narrow road. And through that vision, it was a great source of encouragement. God essentially was saying to his people, keep your eyes on me. 
even though you are disappointed, even though it seems like nothing but darkness and confusion, keep your eyes on me and you will be able to walk safely upon the path. And notice, friends, when she received that vision, notice how she felt when God told her to share it with others. From her own writings, Ella White said this, When this work was first given me, I begged the Lord to lay the burden on someone else. The work was so large and broad and, I, and deep, and I feared that I could not do it. But by His Holy Spirit, the Lord has enabled me to perform the work which He gave me to do. And so notice, friends, she didn't ask for this gift. She did not pray for this calling. God is the one that placed it on, on her. Because remember, God is the one that determines who receives which gift. And although feeling inadequate and physically incapable, in faith she accepted a mission from God that would last the rest of her life. Ellen White received over 2,000 prophetic visions and dreams, over 2,000 of them, some of them lasting a few minutes, others to several hours. Not only that, but she wrote over 100,000 pages all by hand. And she'd lectured to thousands of individuals on three different continents. Now, the last years of her life was spent right here in the state of California. And I want you to notice what one Californian historian said concerning the ministry of Ellen White. George Wharton James, he wasn't a Seventh-day Adventist. He was a historian. And he wrote a book about the history of California entitled California, Romantic and the Beautiful. And because Ellen White lived in California during this time, he commented on her life. Now, notice what he said. This remarkable woman, though almost entirely self-educated, has written and published more books and in more languages, which circulate to a greater extent than the written works of any other woman in history. Friends, it's a known fact that the writings of Ellen White, she is the most translated woman author of all time, period. She is also the most translated American author of all time. And her writings are the fourth most translated of all writings in the world. Friends, do you know what the number one transla uh, translated piece of literature is? The Bible. Can you say amen? amen? The second most translated is dictionaries. The third, encyclopedias. And the fourth, the writings of Ellen G. White. And what's remarkable about that is that she only had a third grade education. How could she accomplish that with a third grade education? It was the Holy Spirit that gave her that special, special gift. Now, what, what, what is her role in the Seventh-day Adventist church? Well, friends, as I mentioned, Satan has spread many lies concerning the ministry of Ellen White. And so what is the truth? Well, here's the truth. Ellen White did not found the Seventh-day Adventist church. She's not the founder, friends. God used a group of people. She was amongst them, but she was not the sole founder. The church does not place her writings above the Bible. Many people think that Seventh-day Adventists, we, we, we listen to Ellen White more than the Bible. Not at all, friends. We, we exalt the Word of God as the, the test of all tests, the sole rule of authority. In fact, I want to read you from the book, Seventh-day Adventists Believe, on page 227. It comments on the Bible and the spirit of prophecy. And notice what the church, the official stance of the church when it comes to the ministry of Ellen White. It says, the writings of Ellen White are not a substitute for Scripture. Amen. They cannot be placed on the same level. The Holy Scriptures stand alone. The unique standard by which her and all other writings must be judged and which they must be subject. 
The Bible is the supreme standard. Seventh-day Adventists fully support the Reformation principle of sola scriptura, the Bible as its own interpreter, and the Bible alone as the basis of all doctrines. And if you believe that, would you please say amen? The Bible is clear, friends. We're clear on this too, that, 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 that the Word of God stands alone. It's the supreme Word. It is the infallible Word of God, the test. And friends, a part of that same Bible is a prophecy that God will restore all the gifts of the Spirit to His end-time church. And so because the Bible teaches that, we believe it too, and we need to look for the fulfillment of that prophecy. And so, therefore, how does the church view the writings of Ellen G. White? Let me, let me see if I have an example here. Yes, I do. How does the church view the writings of Ellen G. White? Here's how we view them, friends. Like a magnifying glass. Now, friends, if I have a magnifying glass up here, now, what happens if I take this magnifying glass and I put it over the Bible? Is the magnifying glass going to add something in the Bible that's not yet already there? No. Is it going to take out something that's there, yes or no? No, friends. The magnifying glass doesn't add or take away. It simply enlarges and makes clearer that which is already in the Word of God. Can you say amen? And that's what every single prophet in the Bible has done. When God rose up a prophet, they always magnified and enlarged upon what God said through the prophets that came before them. And so too, Ellen White, her writings are not an addition to the Bible. They're not to take the place of the Bible. They're simply to make larger and clearer that which God has already revealed in His Word. That's how the church views the ministry of Ellen G. White. Can you say amen? And so, the only thing left for an honest man to do is to follow the biblical instructions when it comes to prophets. And what is that? Let's read it again. Here's what the Bible tells us we need to do. In 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 20 and 21, three things as we read before. Number one, do not what? Despise prophesying. Friends, I know that for those who are hearing this for the first time tonight, this may sound strange to you. But don't despise prophesying, the Bible says. Don't close your mind to it. Instead, what are you to do? Number two, test all things. Put it to the test, friends. If it's true, it will pass the test. If it's false, it will fold when it's tested. You don't have to be afraid of it as long as you test it. And if it's true, it will pass the test. That's the second thing. And if, and if it does, number three, what are we to do? Hold on to that which is good. And so as you're hearing this, God says, don't despise it. Test it out. If it passes it, hold on to it as something that's a gift from me. And, and so how should we test the writings of Ellen White? Here's how we do it, friends. We compare it. We read her writings and compare it with what the Bible has revealed to us. We don't test someone by reading what other people have said about that person. Because, friends, many websites out there have taken the writings of Ellen White out of its context, twisted it, and made, it, made their own crazy assumptions from it. And so we don't test something based upon what other people have said. We read it ourselves. We go to the source, and we read the context, and that's how we test any person to see if it's true. And friends, as I mentioned, many websites have just twisted things 
And many websites have flat out lied about things. And this shouldn't be a surprise, by the way, because Satan always attacks God's prophets. Notice what they did to the prophets of old. In 2 Chronicles 24, 19, yet he sent prophets to them to bring them again unto the Lord, and they testified against them, but they would not give ear. You see, friends, being a prophet was difficult even in biblical times. All, many of the prophets were killed, friends. The people did not want to listen to the words of the prophets. Satan attacked God's true messengers. And if he did that to the prophets of old, surely he would do it with an end-time prophet as well. It was to be a spokesperson for God is never easy because of the attacks of Satan. And friends, when you look at the life and ministry and works of Mrs. White, she was never one that put herself out there. She never once said, you better listen to me because I'm the prophet. Never, friends. In fact, notice what she wrote. I have felt for years that if I could have my choice and please God as well, I would rather die than have a vision. For every vision places me under great responsibility to bear testimonies of reproof and warning. She said, if I could do my own thing and still please God, I would rather die than receive a vision. Because she understood the solemnity of, of being a recipient of a vision to, to give it to others. And then it says, which has ever been against my feelings, causing me affliction of soul that is inexpressible. Never have I coveted my position, and yet I dare not resist the Spirit of God and seek for an easier position. You see, God is the one that determines who gets what gift. And I believe that because of her humility and the weakness of her, of her flesh, that God was able to trust her with his sacred gift, knowing that she would not take the glory unto herself. And so now, before we close, we need to ask the questions. Did she place her words above the Bible? Absolutely not, friends. Of course not. She championed the Word of God as the final authority in all doctrinal questions. In fact, notice what she wrote in the book, Cole Ministry, page 125. Here's what she said. Little heed is given to the Bible, and the Lord has given a what kind of light? A lesser light to lead men and women to the what? greater light. Friends, the greater light is Jesus and the words of Jesus. And she said that it's a lesser light to lead us to the greater light, which is, of course, the Word of God. In fact, notice in another place in, the, in a book, The Faith I Live By, page 13, she wrote, the Holy Scriptures are to be accepted as an authoritative, infallible revelation of His will. They are the standard of character, the revealer of doctrines, and the test of experience. And if you believe that, you say amen. amen. The Word of God, friends, she championed it, the final authority. Notice another one in the book, Fundamentals of Christian Education. She wrote, the Bible is the only rule of faith and doctrine, and there is nothing more calculated to energize the mind and to strengthen the intellect than the study of the Word of God. No other book is so potent to elevate the thoughts, give vigor to the faculties as the broad and nobling truths of the Bible. If God's Word were studied as it should be, men would have a breadth of mind, a nobility of character, and a stability of purpose that is rarely seen in these times. And if you believe that, you say amen. The Word of God, friends, and this was in a book, Fundamentals to Christ Christian Education. She wrote a few books on Christian education. And she said that the, one of the, the greatest book in true education is the B-I-B-L-E, the Bible. Amen? She was not lifting up her writings or herself. In fact, notice, next question. Do her writings harmonize with the Bible? Yes. 
If they didn't, they must be rejected. But friends, they are in complete harmony with the Word of God. But don't believe, don't believe because I say it. Check for yourself, friends. Let me just share with you some of the books that she has written. Ellen White has written, as we mentioned, over 100,000 pages. And many of these are published in books, over 50 books. And uh, one of her, I have a few of them up here I want to share with you. One of her best books, a masterpiece, is this book right here, entitled The Desire of Ages. It's a book on the life of Christ. It takes Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, puts them all together in chapter form, and it brings out personal applications of, uh, of the life and teachings of Jesus Christ. In fact, in 835 pages, how many pages? In this masterpiece on the life of Christ, in 835 pages, there are 3,955 Bible texts all in its context. That's about five verses for every page you read. Friends, you'll be hard-stretched to find any book that has so much Scripture like that, always bringing us back to the Word of God. In fact, the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C., they said that out of their 10,000 volumes they had on the life of Christ there in the Library of Congress, they said, a former librarian said that out of the 10,000 volumes of the life of Christ that we have, the very best one for personal application and spiritual discernment is The Desire of Ages, written by Ellen G. White. Friends, this is a powerful book. I've read this book so many times. Every time I read it, it brings me closer to Jesus. It brings me back to the Word of God. It, it just reveals the love of God. If you read the last chapters especially, the chapters on Gethsemane and Calvary, Oh, you'll find yourself weeping with conviction at the love that God has for us. It's a very powerful book. I highly recommend the book, Desire of Ages. There's other books, Acts of the Apostles on the Early Apostolic Church, Prophets and Kings in the Old Testament, Patriots and Prophets. Here's another beautiful book, The Ministry of Healing, a book that deals with the healing ministry of Christ. And it goes through in it, and it shows that Christ not only wants to heal us spiritually, but also physically, mentally, emotionally, socially, in our relationships. It's a book about holistic healing, and it's a powerful book. Another book, um, Christ's Object Lessons, about the parables of Jesus, explaining the parables. She wrote a, a book about education, that this book is used by many even secular professionals in the education field as one of the best guides to true education. And this book right here, one of the most powerful books that she ever wrote, the book, The Great Controversy. This book describes the, or expounds upon the prophecies of Daniel and Revelation. It, it outlines end-time events describing what's going to happen in the last days. And friends, you read some of the last chapters of this book, you see it happening right now. It's like you're reading the newspaper. It's like you're watching the news, friends. She's describing what's going to happen. It's beautiful, just expounding upon what God has already revealed in Daniel and Revelation. In fact, she said that of all her books, this is the most important one for us to read. This is the one, the book, The Great Controversy Between Good and Evil. She wrote another book, one of my favorites, small classic book called Steps to Christ. Thirteen chapters, which are 13 steps of how to get to know Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior. This book has been translated in over 150 languages around the world, billions of copies printed uh, and shared with people all over the world, leading individuals to a closer walk with Jesus. I've read this over and over again. Each time I read it, I'm drawn closer to Christ and back to the Word. It's such a beautiful book. The first chapter is the first step, and that is God's love for man. Amen. The second chapter, the sinner's need for Christ. Third chapter, repentance, and then confession, consecration, so forth. What to do with doubt? Powerful book. In fact, all of you will receive a free copy of this book 
on your way out tonight so you can see for yourself how Christ-centered and biblical it is. And so her writings harmonize with the Bible, but don't believe me because I say it. Check for yourself, and you'll be richly blessed. Now, do her writings uplift Jesus? Oh, by the way, even better, you can download all her writings for free if you have a smartphone. Just search in the App Store, uh, Ellen White's writings, and you can download all her writings for free, and you can check it out on your smartphone yourself. Next question. Did, or excuse me, do her writings uplift Jesus? Oh, friends, absolutely. The way she speaks about Jesus, the language she uses, you can tell that she is close with the Lord. In fact, she wrote a book called Gospel Workers, which is a powerful book that teaches us how we can be more effective witnesses for Christ. And one of the greatest ways we can witness, she said, lift up Jesus. You that teach the people, lift him up in sermon and song and prayer. Let all your powers be directed in pointing souls, confused, bewildered, and lost to the Lamb of God. And that's what we want to do in this seminar as well. Did she accurately predict the future? That was another test, remember? Prophetic accuracy. Did she accurately predict the future? Absolutely, yes. Though her writings are more than 100 years old, only now is modern science catching up with some of the things that she had written over 100 years ago. Let me give you a few examples of this. Back in the 1800s, when she lived and wrote, people had no idea that sugar and fat contributed to coronary heart disease. And in this time period of gross ignorance concerning health, she wrote about a diet of whole grains, fruits, nuts, and vegetables. And this is the same diet that the American Heart Association now recommends. It is an anti-cancer diet that can prevent type 2 diabetes and even reverse type 2 diabetes. She basically expounded, expounded upon the biblical principles of health, things that are found in the Bible, but rather expounded, magnified for us. God used her to expound on those principles because He loves us, and He wants us to be healthy and happy people. Can you say amen? In fact, I want you to notice what one professor of nutrition at Cornell University, very prestigious university, Dr. Clive McKay, he was not a Seventh-day Adventist, but he's a university professor. And I want you to notice what he said about the writings of a third grader. In spite of the fact that the works of Mrs. Wright were written long before the advent of modern scientific nutrition, no better overall guide is available today. How in the world could a university professor give such an endorsement upon someone that only had a third grade education? She had to have been inspired by God. Can you say amen? It was written long before modern scientific nutrition, and yet what she said was well beyond her years, even till today. In fact, not long ago, uh, National Geographic, a secular magazine, ran an article, The Secrets of Living Longer, where they studied individuals or, or groups of people in the world that live a long time. They looked at three groups in the world that, that, that lived very long, and only one of them was a religious group. And that religious group was the Seventh-day Adventist in Loma Linda, California. And because of the writings of Mrs. White and the principles of health from the Bible, it said in this secular magazine that Seventh-day Adventists who follow the health principles live on average from seven to ten years longer than the average person. How many of you like to add a decade to your life? 
For as God has shown us how by these biblical principles expounded in the spirit of prophecy. In fact, I want you to notice another one. In 1864, Ellen White wrote these words. She said, tobacco is a poison of the most deceitful and malignant kind. It is all the more dangerous because its effects upon the system are so slow and scarcely perceivable. Now, friends, that's not a surprise to us today. But you have to understand that in 1864, people laughed at this statement. Do you know why? Because the medical doctors in 1864, they were actually prescribing tobacco smoke for those who had problems breathing. They said, this is going to help you out. And here comes this woman with a third-grade education saying, no. And the doctors, the specialists, laughed. And it wasn't until about 100 years later that science finally caught up with what God had spoken through his prophet. It wasn't until 1957 that the American Heart Association concluded that smoking was not a curative but a causative factor in lung cancer. Once again, God's prophet was one step ahead of the world. Can you say amen? She also predicted natural disasters, friends. In 1903, Ellen White warned that the cities of San Francisco and Oakland would be visited in judgments by the Lord because they were fast becoming like the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. She had visions of this. She wrote it down in 1903, and friends, about a few years later in 1906, or, or five or six it was, the great San Francisco earthquake. The prediction came true. The city was destroyed and it was burning. And when the prophet received the news, she wept, friends. She wept. She also predicted the American Civil War. And she did this when all the politicians, including President Lincoln, and all the politicians, they were certain that there would be no war, and if there was a war, it would be very short in its duration. But she said, no, there is going to be a war. I saw it in vision, and it's going to be long in its duration. And while President Lincoln and all the politicians said no, when the specialists said no, the prophet was the one that was actually true. And it happened, friends. God showed her Americans killing Americans, and she warned the people. She also saw some other things. In a book, Last Day Events, on page 113, she wrote, When in New York City I was in the night season called upon to behold buildings rising story after story toward heaven. These buildings were warranted to be fireproof. The scene that next passed before me was an alarm of fire. Men looked at the lofty and supposedly fireproof buildings and said, they're perfectly safe. But these buildings were consumed as if made of pitch. The fire engines could do nothing to stay the destruction, and the firemen were unable to operate their engines. And there's a lot of other things we can share. I'm going to let you folks study for yourself, but there are many things that was predicted that has come to pass in our world today, even things that are more specific in nature. And now the last test. Do, do her writings bear good fruit? Absolutely yes. Friends, her writings have blessed not only the church, but it's blessed the world as well. Her writings, her counsel, and her leadership. Let me tell you what happened. Because of her writings and her leadership and her counsel, it has led to the fastest growing Christian denomination in the world, the Seventh Adventist Church. It has also led to the denomination that has the furthest reach, missionary reach, more than any other Protestant denomination in the world, the Seventh Adventist Church, in more countries than any other Protestants in the world today. Her writings and, and, her, and her ministry has also led to the largest Protestant educational system in the world, Adventist education, largest in the world. 
And her writings have also led to the largest Protestant health system in the United States of America, Adventist health, all over the place. And I want you to notice these amazing comparisons. We're almost done tonight. But in the year that she died, in 1915, here were the stats of, of the Seventh Adventist Church. Its membership was just over 100,000. There were 37 publishing houses, 34 sanitariums, which were hospital or health-like institutions. We had over 70 colleges and academies, over 500 elementary schools, and her writings were translated in over 36 different languages. That was in 1915 when she died. Fast forward about 100 years later, or a little less than 100 years later, and notice how the ministry has grown exponentially. Churches, we have over 71,000 churches around the world. Membership, right now it's over 18 million around the world. Countries present, over 100, uh, 209. Schools, 7,800. Hospitals and sanitariums, extending the healing ministry of Christ, 173. Media centers, 14. Beaming messages of hope through the media, internet, and television all over the world. Publishing houses, over 63. And then you have ADRA, Adventist Disaster Relief Association. And these are, uh, this is the, the, the social work, the helping people. Whenever there's a natural disaster or, or calamity that takes place in any country, the Seventh-day Adventist Church are on the front lines through, the, through this mission. Projects that have been funded, over 1,800. Beneficiaries, over 40 million. And total value of aid, over $281 million spent in bringing relief to individuals who are in difficult uh, situations. And so I don't think that's good fruit. I think that's great fruit. Can you say Amen. It all came from the ministry of Ellen White, friends. Her counsel on family and the home has mended many dysfunctional relationships. If you have problems with your marriage, pick up the book Adventist Home. It's a beautiful book that talks about the marriage and the family, expounding on biblical principles. I've been so blessed. If you're having problems with your children, pick up the book by Ellen White, Child Guidance. She talks about prenatal care. She talks about how to raise our children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Her writings on health and temperance has caused Seventh-day Adventists to live a decade longer than the average person. And friends, even those who are not Seventh-day Adventists, those in the world, acknowledge a special gift with Ellen White. In fact, U.S. News and World Report read an article not long ago, 11 health habits that help you live to 100. How many would like to live to 100? And notice, one of those 11 health habits, you know what they said? They said, live like a Seventh-day Adventist. Americans who define themselves as Seventh-day Adventists have an average life expectancy of 89, about a decade longer than the average American. One of the basic tenets of the religion is that it's important to cherish the body that's on loan from God. But friends, that's what, what the Bible teaches, right? Our body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And then it says, <clears throat> which means no smoking, alcohol abuse, or overindulging in sweets. Can you say Amen. Now, some of you didn't say amen, but that's all right. <laughs> followers, followers typically stick to a vegetarian diet based on fruits, vegetables, beans, and nuts and get plenty of exercise. They're also very focused on family and community. Now, God used Ellen White to expound upon it, but all, the, all those principles are in the Bible. It's the Edenic diet, friends, the principles of health. And so we find that God has blessed the world, both Christian and non-Christian alike through the ministry of Ellen White. Her life and labors closed when she died in 1915 at the old ripe age of 87 years old. Remember, friends, when she was third grade, 
The doctor says she has maybe months to live. But God preserved her life until she was 87. And she did a beautiful work, and she's buried at the Oak Hill Cemetery in Battle Creek, Michigan. That's her grave, friends. Nothing special. There's no shrine there. People don't go there and pray and, 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 and do stuff. It's very simple, friends. Very simple. And a few weeks after she passed away, here's what the newspaper said concerning her life. She showed no spiritual pride, and she sought no filthy lucre. In other words, she didn't get rich. All the money that, 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 that came in through, the, through her writings and books, she was always giving it away, friends. Giving it away, supporting the work of God through Christian education. Giving it to young people trying to get an education. Giving it to the publishing work. She sought no filthy lucre. She lived the life and did the work of a worthy prophetess, the most admirable of the American succession. And friends, she was simply a humble servant that loved the Lord Jesus and truly loved people. Her neighbors knew her as the kind and friendly woman that was always coming by to share the fruits from her garden, always with a smile and a gentle uh, uh, look upon her countenance. And friends, as we close tonight, it's, in, it's important for us to understand that Ellen White is not the spirit of prophecy. The Holy Spirit is the spirit of prophecy. She was simply the recipient of a special gift, and her legacy to the world is a gift from God a good God who wants to keep in touch with us in a special, infinite, imp intimate way at the end of time. And so as we close, how shall we respond to what we've heard tonight? Well, friends, tonight I'm not going to ask you to accept Ellen White as a prophetess. And you can't anyway if you haven't read her writings. But what I will ask you to do is do exactly what the Bible teaches concerning prophets. And what is that? We repeat the verse for the third time. 1 Thessalonians 5, 20 and 21. Three steps, friends, that you need to do tonight. Number one, do not what? Despise prophesying. Right now, you might be tempted to write this off as something crazy. Don't despise it. Don't close your mind. Don't ignore it. Instead, number two, what? Test all things. And remember, how do you test a person? Not by what others are saying, but you go to the source, friends. You test it by reading the writings yourself and you match it, you compare it with the biblical tests. And if it passed the test, and only if it passed the test, number three, hold on to that which is good. Accept it as a good gift from a good God. And so I'm not going to ask you to accept Ellen White because it takes time to do this, but I want you to know that I've done it myself, and I've found that she passes the test. Every time I read the things that she has written, brings me closer to Jesus, makes me a better person, a better husband, a better servant of the Lord. And friends, you won't know that until you check for yourself. And as you do, here's the promise that God gives to you. Second Chronicles 2020 as we close. How many of you want to have 2020 vision? You want 2020 vision? Here it is, friends. Second Chronicles 2020. Believe in the Lord your God and you shall be established. Believe his prophets, and you shall prosper. How many of you want to prosper and be established? How many want to say as we close tonight, Lord, I've heard something that maybe sounds strange, but help me to be willing to not despise prophesying, to test all things, and to hold on to that which is good. Lord, give me the Holy Spirit to lead me into an understanding of truth, as I investigate these things for myself. 
How many are willing to do that tonight? If so, let me see your hand. All right, God bless you folks. Let us pray. Thank you so much, Lord, for this simple Bible study and for your promise that the gifts of the Spirit, all of them, would be confirmed in your church all the way to the end of time. You don't want us to lack any gift. And you give these things to us so that we could reach out to the world and so that we ourselves, as you reach in, that we can be edified. And Father, I want to pray that your Holy Spirit would guide us as we investigate these things, as we read these writings. Lord, if this is truly of you, give us clarity, give us conviction, and we pray, Lord, that if it's not of you, that you would remove it. Because, Lord, we only want that which is from heaven. And we thank you so much that you've promised to lead us and guide us. When we open our mind, that you would guide us into all truth. So bless us. Do that now for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.